Uh, but for today, we're talking about the house of the Lord. We, the church, are here today. Uh, we're not in the church. Rather, we are the church, as you are aware. But what is the biblical basis for the very existence of the church? Not just in form or function, what it is we do and how we do it, although the Lord willing, we understand our roles in that as well. But rather, why does it exist? What purpose does the church serve? This weekend, at my home church of Harvest Time, our leadership team assembled to discuss this question uh, and review how our church is aligned with these principles. After all, if we don't understand why we are here, it's difficult to understand what it is we should be doing. To answer this question, we'll be going back to the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a familiar passage. Over the next six days, God creates light and darkness and land and seas and trees and flowers and sun, moon, and stars and all the things that exists. He created the universe and everything in it. And on the sixth day, he created man. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Adam was created in the image of God and given dominion or stewardship over all of God's creation. He had unity with the wife God created for him and a fellowship with God himself in the cool of the day. As the firstborn of all mankind, this is the example we have of the original purpose for our existence as individuals. Bear God's image, steward his creation, and be in relationship with him and with each other. The uh, Westminster Confession, which is a fancy word for things that have been around a lot longer than I have, uh, sums it up in this one phrase, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But Adam was deceived, and through his fall, sin entered the world, bringing corruption to what God had called good. We lost fellowship with God, and mankind was driven from the Garden of Eden, naked and ashamed, for they were no longer clothed in God's glory. But God had a plan. In Genesis 3.15, he tells of the woman's offspring, who will one day bruise the head of the serpent who had deceived them. Through Eve's son, Seth, begins the genealogy that one day results in the birth of Jesus, who defeats the power of sin forever with his death on the cross and resurrection. But we're not there quite yet. In Genesis, we read that God still speaks to those who are faithful, to Noah, who was blameless among his wicked generation, and to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, called out by God to fulfill his promise, to the descendants of Jacob, whose name became Israel, and to Moses, when the time came to free them from captivity in Egypt. On this stage, God makes himself a little more evident. He sends plagues upon the Egyptians, parts the Red Sea, and appears to the nation of Israel as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, which did not depart 
from before the people. God makes a covenant with his chosen people and gives them a command. Make a tabernacle, a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. There within the most holy place, from above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, God makes his home with his people. Now, if you're wondering what this has to do with the church, don't worry, we'll get there. For now, I just want you to picture things through the eyes of the Israelites. God himself, in the evidence of his power, delivers them from captivity and is leading them to the inheritance he had promised their ancestors. Not only that, but he also wants to dwell with them. God's glory carried with them as they travel and his instruction available to them through the commandments. Exodus 34 even states that, although he didn't know it, Moses' face was shining after he spoke with the Lord. How's that for a confirmation that your leadership is in the right place? Just Moses goes to the tabernacle, you know, into the most holy place, speaks before God, and comes out with his face literally shining light, uh, as shown in Exodus 34. Make it a little harder to dismiss his words, right? Don't need fire and brimstone then. I find it easy in my pride to say that if only God would reveal himself in a similar way to me, if he would speak to me audibly or prove himself with this miracle or that healing, then I would be obedient to him and have no problem walking righteously. That those Israelites were utter fools to complain and be disobedient to God who had provided so much for them. And yet, if I'm honest, how many days have I gone without spending time in the word, even though I know it is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path, that by delighting in his law and meditating on it day and night, I will prosper in all that I do. Despite knowing these things, despite being given the clear instruction by God, it's easy for me to ignore his goodness and to chase after the things that don't matter as much. To distract my time with reading books and watching YouTube videos and all this stuff that so easily ensnares us. Like Paul, I do the things I don't want to do and don't do the things that are good for me. Uh, God instructs his people to build a sanctuary that he might dwell in their midst, the presence of God forever with his people. In 2 Samuel, God promises David, your offspring shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel 7, 12-13. This is immediately fulfilled through David's son Solomon, who, as we know, builds the first temple in Jerusalem. But it's also a prophecy regarding another one of David's descendants, whose kingdom will be established forever. Anyone care to wager a guess as to who that might be? That's right, it's Jesus. The Old Testament is filled with things that point to him, like the promises of God mentioned already, that he will crush the serpent's head, that his kingdom will be established, that he will deliver his people from captivity, give sight to the blind, and life to those who are dead. We've got too many to go into today, so I'll move forward. Even though we don't see a pillar of cloud outside right now, and my face isn't currently shining, the presence of God is revealed to us through Jesus in the scriptures. And through that revelation, 
comes the foundation for his church. We'll read this right now in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. If you've got your scriptures available, we can turn there. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly discharged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, it's kind of an interesting uh, couple notes here from the scripture. Uh, the first one in verse 20, that he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. It's kind of an odd thing, right? You'd think that Jesus would want people to know who he is. And he does, but not yet. See, at this point in his ministry, he was still setting the stage for his crucifixion. You know, if the people had gathered around him and lifted him up and said, this is our king whom we will serve, and all the nations fell before his feet, he wouldn't have made it to the cross. It is only at his second coming that he fulfills that portion of scripture. So for the moment, it's still considered part of the mystery, you know, unveiled after his death and resurrection. The second thing I'd like to point out is this is the first biblical mention of the word church. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek, and the word church is ekklesia, literally means those who are called out. This is not the people who, you know, worshipped in the temple every day or, you know, went through their daily routines and said, praise Jesus every once in a while, right? These are those who are called out, just like Jesus had called his disciples. You know, you are no longer fishermen or tax collectors. You are followers of Jesus, Right? Just like we spoke about uh, in my last uh, sermon about the mission that we have, you know, those who are called to go and to proclaim the gospel and to be separate from the sins of the world and to be gathered together in his name as one flock. That's the church. Peter's profession of faith begins to build the foundation for the church. Those who are called out by Jesus' name, those who submit themselves to him, and declare his lordship. In Romans 10, 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With salvation comes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, adoptions as sons and daughters of the Most High God, and membership in the Church of Jesus Christ. 
This process is described in Ephesians chapter 2, which we're going to read here as well. I'll go ahead and read the whole chapter because it is excellent and God's word is never wasted. Uh, but we're going to be focusing on uh, that section in verses 11 through 22. But beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we had all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, this is not of your own doing, but is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church exists because God commanded it. He built it. He established it. Through Moses, God told the Israelites to build a sanctuary. And through Jesus, he established his church. Both are created so God may dwell with his people. We who were separated from God by our sin, living in the passions of our flesh and following the course of this world, were called out of slavery to our desires and brought into the promise of fellowship with God. I love what it says in verses 4 to 7, that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even while we were dead in sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Because he loved us, and so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. There's another scripture passage where believers are compared to uh, the work of a potter. That Jesus being the potter, or God, fashions us and molds us into the image that he desires us to be. That we are his masterpiece. We are his workmanship created by God for a purpose and a reason. I, uh, I'm not much of an artist myself. Uh, my wife and I occasionally go and we'll paint uh, pictures. There's a, a place that you can, they have all the materials and you just go paint whatever you want. And we've got our kitchen uh, wall is, is you know, dedicated to these pieces of art that we have made. Not because you know, they have any uh, special, you know, they don't do anything, right? They hang there on the wall and, and look pretty. But because it's something that we made, we have you know, an attachment to it. You know, we'd probably be sad if it got burnt up in a fire. And I think Jesus has the same attachment to us, to his church, you know, God for his people. He made us, right? He desires a relationship with us. And he gathers us to himself, builds a church that he may dwell with us, and proclaims us, you know, as his workmanship, the creation that he called good. Not because of anything we have done or deserve, but by his good pleasure and because of his love. We, as God's church, are a dwelling place for him. We exist like the original purpose of mankind to bear his image. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says that we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. The church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of the body. We do all things in submission to his authority and alignment with his will. We exist by his good pleasure because he loves us and desires a relationship with us. He sanctifies us cleanses us, and presents us to himself holy and without blemish, as you read in Ephesians 6. As believers, and especially as men, we like to try and do all the heavy lifting, to sanctify ourselves, to present ourselves to Jesus as holy and without blemish. I can say this because I am chief among sinners in this regard. You know, I spent a lot of time, and did spend a lot of time, trying to be holy as God is holy, to walk according to his law, to fulfill all the commandments. And I fall short, right? As you read in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even those Old Testament saints, you know, Moses, Abraham, Joshua, they fall short of the glory. They've sinned, right? Adam himself, you know, the first to walk away from the path that God had designed but because of his great love for us. While we were still sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses, Christ Jesus died for us 
And yet, even with that knowledge, I find myself striving to be perfect. I'm going to share a little bit of my testimony with you today, if you don't mind. Uh, so I'm Hezekiah. I'm the fourth among seven children. Uh, my parents are God-fearing, lovely people. My dad works full-time, and my mom stayed home and cared for all of us kids. I was homeschooled and raised in church and you know, knew the Bible and to walk rightly by it you know, for all my life. The thing is, there's a difference between knowing God's word and doing God's word. You know, I tried right, in my flesh to do what was good and right and holy, and I made mistakes. And when you're a kid, you know, those mistakes are easy to overlook, right? You know, oh, he's just a kid. He's going to act like a kid. Uh, I was smart, and I, you know, knew the word, and I could quote the scriptures and answer all the questions in Sunday school. So I was the good kid, right? I didn't have any problems. My parents didn't have to, you know, cuss me out, respect me every day, although I got my fair share. Uh, but as I grew older, you know, into my teenager years, as I... Uh, started finishing school and, and starting to work, suddenly that standard was raised. I was no longer the precocious, above-average, super-smart kid. I was a teenager, you know, filled with hormones and walking away from God because I didn't have a relationship with him. You know, I knew it was right, but I chose to ignore it. You know, I knew it was good and chose, you know, the world because I thought the world was better. And living up to the standards of God in my own efforts became a lot harder as I grew to understand them more. So I didn't want to go to church because I knew I'd feel guilty. And I didn't want to spend time in my word because I'd feel guilty. And I didn't want to have a relationship with God the Father because I didn't want another dad to be disappointed in me. But God, in his infinite mercy, in his immeasurable love, called me out of the depression that I was in, of the darkness that I was facing, of the guilt and the disappointment that I felt and the shame that I felt like I wasn't worth anything to him, to anyone, that only by the works that I could do, I could receive any measure of love from my friends, from my family, from God himself. But that's not what it's about. Because God, in his immeasurable richness, called me out of that life and said, I love you not because of what you do for me, but because I made you, and because I want to dwell with you. All of our efforts to do whatever we, it is we believe God calls us to do are wasted if we do it in our own strength. We must learn to be before we can do. To abide, as Jesus says in John 15, 4 through 8. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The dichotomy here is not that works are fruitless, but that we must have God first to do works. I can never do enough to earn God's love his salvation, or a place in his church. But as a member of his church, abiding in him, connected to him, filled by his spirit, and walking in communion under his authority, then the fruits are a result of that. right? The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, they come when you're in the spirit. It's not a question of, you know, am I loving enough or kind enough or good enough? The question is, am I in the spirit enough? Am I in Christ enough? Because without him, we can do nothing. In Psalms 1, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree which is planted by rivers of flowing water that brings forth fruit in its season and does not wither. That all the result of our good works, the good works themselves, are fruitless unless we're attached to Christ. And when we are attached to Christ, we will bear fruit. There is no question about it. And by this, the Father is glorified. When we abide in Christ, in relationship with him, in obedience to his word, we are able to bear fruit. In fact, we can't help but bear fruit, right? By being his disciples, right, we will love each other. The doing comes after being. We exist for the glory of God. All of our service inside the church and outside is ultimately for that purpose. It's not for me, because of me, or about me anyway. Whatever we do in word or deed, do wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. When we serve the least of these, we serve the Lord. When we do good deeds, it is so that others would glorify God. So why does the church exist? What is our purpose? God's church exists by his will, abiding in his love, and for his glory. As the church, as all believers... We share in the mission to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations. As individual members of the body, we are given different gifts and callings, but our purpose is the same, as in Psalms 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Father God, we can do nothing else but glorify and magnify your name. As we sang earlier today, there is nothing better than you. All the things of the past are worthless in comparison to the glory that is to come. Lord, just like the Israelites who were called out of Egypt and to dwell with their God in the land that he had promised them, let us leave behind the trespasses, the earthly desires, the things of our flesh that try to pull us back to say things were better in Egypt or in our old life. But God, help us to be so connected to you, so close to you, living 
in unity with you as your body in submission to your authority that whatever temptations arise in the world, we could just look at them and say, no, my God is better. I do not desire the things of this world, Lord, but you. For in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are riches forevermore. Lord, you've said in your word that if we delight ourselves in you, that you will fulfill the desires of our heart. Help our joy to be found in you, not in the things of this world. Help our faith to be found in you, not in the things that we can see. God, we praise you. We magnify your name. We exist for your glory. Help all that we do to reflect that in our lives. That when we depart this place, we would be beacons of light in the world, not concealed, but displayed for all to see, that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Lord, that by our works we would be seen, but that our works would not come without you, that we would strive to do nothing in our own strength, but only by your Spirit. For it is not by might nor by power, by the Spirit of the Lord, that all things are possible. Again, God, we praise you. We lift up your name. For you alone are worthy to be praised. Yours is the name above every name. And by you and to you and through you are all things. This name is Jesus' name. And by him we pray. Amen.